So if you have a Bible, let's open it up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to be preaching this morning from verses 7 through 19. So as we usually do, let us show reverence to God's Word and please stand as I read our text here this morning. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word as the Holy Spirit spoke not only through your servant David, but also through the author of Hebrews. I thank you that your scriptures still speak to us today. Lord, we need to hear from you, and we are grateful that you have revealed yourself divinely through the scriptures that we can take great confidence that what we have read here this morning and what I am going to preach is the inspiration of your word. And so God, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that the words of my mouth, that the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. And Lord, we ask just that we would have soft hearts, ears to hear from your word here and now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. Who here has heard of Jerry Bridges? Show of hands. Not Jeff Bridges. Not not the dude. The big Lebowski. You know. No, but Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is a bit of a spiritual hero in my life. He wrote a number of books that you may be familiar with, The Pursuit of Holiness, The Discipline of Grace. I actually came to faith reading one of his books. It's called Trusting God. And it was kind of his, the fruit of his study after his first wife died from cancer. Is God really in control? And can he be, be trusted? The answer is yes, he can be. But Jerry was a spiritual hero, not just because I read his books, but I actually got to know him personally. About 10 years ago, I was on staff with a ministry called The Navigators, and Jerry had been on staff with The Navigators for 40 years. And before he was this author that was well-known, he was this no-name guy, not in the spotlight. 
And he just faithfully served as an administrator for 40 years. Nobody knew who he was. And so, as I got to know him when I was on staff with the NAVs, we'd, we'd invite him up to speak to our large group meeting. Uh, I'd, got to, I'd get to go out with him and his wife afterwards and ask them questions. And... But then, one summer, uh, my wife and I, Michelle, we, we were in Colorado Springs, which is where he lived. And I said, hey, Jerry, can, can we go get breakfast? Can I buy you breakfast? He said, well, sure, Daniel. And so, Jerry, I mean, he was just this, this old guy. He was very frail, very soft-spoken. And so I just come out guns blazing. I'm like, Jerry, hey, I want to know all about Reformed theology. I want to know all about election. I want to know about the perseverance of the saints. So he just starts, like, unpacking these things. And I'm like, Jerry, wait, wait, wait. Can I record this? And he's like, well, sure, Daniel. <laughs> so I, I pull out my phone and hit the voice memos, and, and I have this great little memory of Jerry and I sharing breakfast and him talking about the depths of election, which is just so, so awesome, so great. Well, Jerry went home to be with the Lord a few years back, and I remember when I got word that he died and now he's with Jesus, there was there's an element of sadness in my heart, by all means. I mean, he, he was, I would say, more than an acquaintance. He was somewhat of a friend. And... But beyond that sadness, I was, I was really joyful because this man had finished well. This man had fought the good fight. He had finished his race. He had kept the faith. And that faith endured to the end. You see, Jerry Bridges is my spiritual hero, one of them, because... He's a great example to follow. And he encouraged and exhorted many by his words and his writings and also by just being a friend. And in a day and age where we see many spiritual giants fall a great fall and some even walk away from the faith, it's really sad. And we need these examples. We need these spiritual heroes in our lives. And so I hope you have spiritual heroes. Not ones that are uh, passed on already to glory, and you just read their books, but you know them personally. I'm sure many of you do. But as we come to our text here this morning, in Hebrews chapter 3, we are given an example of the nation of Israel, and an example of unfaithfulness, and really of one that we don't want to follow. A bad example. And as Aaron opened up Hebrews 3 last week, and called us to consider Jesus, to, to hold fast to the confidence that we originally had, I think that, that continues on with our text here this morning. So we're, we're going to see this morning that Israel is not just a bad example to follow, but there's a calling for us. There's a calling for the church to exhort one another to endure in the faith. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. So I've got kind of three points, three movements. Those three points, if you're a note taker, you can write these down. Example, exhortation, and endure. Example, Israel's unfaithfulness. Exhortation, the church's call. And endure in Christ to the end. And so let's dive in. Point number one, Israel's example. Israel's you can put in parentheses, you note takers, bad example. Okay, verse, verse 7 here. This is a quote from Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11 here. 
This uh, psalm was well known in the Jewish liturgy. Uh, Every week when Jews would gather on Saturdays at the synagogue, Psalm 95 would usually be read as a call to worship. It starts out with this idea of, O come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence. Let us kneel before our Maker. So the psalm really acts as a call for us to adore God, who He is. And then there's this refrain, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And so we, we actually see this Psalm 95 quoted five times over the next two chapters in the book of Hebrews. We've got it twice in our passage this morning and three times in chapter 4 for next week. And therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And I just want to highlight this real quick in verse 7. Notice that it says the Holy Spirit says. This is, this is actually really interesting because in chapter 4, which Aaron's going to talk about this next week, uh, it, it gives David as the author of this psalm. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing here, I think is actually pretty cool. Um, but, it, but it makes us wonder, okay, did, did David write this or did God write this? And I would say yes. <laughs> we see that David wrote Psalm 95 as he was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. And so we can take great confidence because of a little phrase like this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, we can take great confidence that the Scriptures are of divine inspiration. And notice that word after Holy Spirit. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit said. Is that what it says? No. It says, says. It does not say said as in the past tense. It says says as in the present tense. In this reality that the author of Hebrews believed this, and we do as well as Orthodox Christian, that God is still speaking through His Word today. And we can take great confidence in that. That whenever the Bible is read, whenever the Bible is studied, prayed, sung, encountered in any way, we can take confidence that this is God's word for his people. And we stand on that. Therefore, church, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in in the rebellion. God is speaking to us here this morning, and we must pay attention. So again, we're talking about Israel's, Israel's example. About a year ago at this time, our church was preaching through Exodus. And oh my gosh, I freaking loved it. Because we took this perspective that Exodus ultimately culminates in the Exodus of Christ. As Christ has redeemed His people from slavery. I will never read the book of Exodus again. I encourage you guys, if you weren't here for that sermon series, you can go track it down on our website. But the people of Israel... They started out so well. The expectations of them were so great as God did these amazing signs and these amazing acts for His people. This nation, this mighty people was grown from one man, Abraham. And while under slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, God raised up this unlikely leader, Moses, 
And God did great signs and these plagues that culminated in the protection of Israel's firstborn. But it was at the expense of the Egyptians' firstborn sons and beasts. And that was the final straw. And Pharaoh let them go. He said, get out. You're done. And they, they ran. <laughs> they exodusted. Pretty sure that's what the Hebrew is. But the Lord used that 430 years of bondage. They were set free. It was amazing. And once they were in the wilderness, God led them by a pillar of cloud, or a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then finally, the Egyptians come to their senses. They realize that they lost all their free labor. So they chased them down. And they chased them all the way up to the Red Sea. And when it looked like, uh uh-oh, we're doomed, God uses Moses to part the Red Sea, and it says that they crossed over on dry ground. And right as the last Israelite crossed over, and the Egyptians all come in, chasing after them, thinking that they'll be able to cross over on dry ground, God wipes them out. God wins the victory, protects His people. And it's amazing. It's incredible. And I would argue it's all a picture, a shadow of what we have in Christ. More on that later. But God was with the nation of Israel. And then in Exodus 15, they sing this song, Moses' song. And it says, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. For He has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. And what a great start for these folks. Israel, redeemed by God, protected by God. And they're worshiping Him on the other side of the sea. Such hopes, such dreams, such expectations. So how could it have ended so poorly? (laughs) Like, what happened? Well, I think we see in our passage this morning that even though they honored God with their lips, their, their heart was far from them. You see, they had a heart issue going on. Now, when the Scripture talks about the heart... It's not talking about this uh, organ that's pumping blood all throughout your body. No, the heart is this idea of this this command center of your very being. the, The seat of your emotions. It's where all your desires come from and your decision making. And while it seemed that Israel's hearts were for God, the fruit of their hard hearts was evidenced in the fact that they are not an example that we should follow. Here in verses 7 through 11, we see words that give evidence to their heart condition. We see words like rebellion. We see words that they put me to the test, that God was provoked by them, that they go astray in their heart, and that they did not know him. There was no intimacy there. They scrutinized God. They quarreled with Him. They were wayward in their heart. And all of this flowed from this hardened heart. Now that word hardened can mean stubborn or obstinate. Think of my kids sometimes when I'm trying to get them to eat salad at the dinner table. It's a little obstinate about that. But more than that, We see that it wasn't this this one-time act at the dinner table. No, this continued 
from day one all the way for 40 years in the nation of Israel. This hard heart that did not want to go know God. And it begs the question, why? Why did Israel have this hard heart? Well, jumping to the end of our passage, I think we see the explicit reason. The author here, in verses 16 through 19, he asks a set of questions. There's a rhetorical question, and then he uses another question to answer it. I'll just read it again for you, starting in verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? And here it is, guys. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. You see, Israel heard God's voice. They saw his mighty acts when they left Egypt. And yet they rebelled. And they didn't just grumble and complain at the beginning when they were hungry, but they grumbled and they complained for 40 years. And Israel was denied access to the rest of God, not only because they heard and rebelled, not only because they were disobedient and provoked God. No, there was this refusal to obey because they had a hard heart. All of this is summed up very nicely for us in verse 19 with the one word, unbelief. Israel was supposed to know God and believe in Him, but they did not trust Him. There was no desire to know Him and to walk in His ways. And because of this, they did not enter the rest of God. Now the rest, what he's talking about here, is this idea of um, it's, it's a metaphor for the promised land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. But rest has this, this kind of two-part reality that, that rest looks back, and it looks back to creation when God rested, but also the, the place of rest between God and man in the Garden of Eden when he dwelled with man, when he walked in the cool of the garden. But more than that, it has this forward-looking faith to, to not just going into the promised land, not just taking the land of Canaan, but more than that, the, the true rest that comes from Christ. And more than that, the rest that we will ultimately have in the new creation. Now Aaron is going to unpack this in great detail next week because that's what chapter 4 is all about. But just to whet your appetite a little bit, the reason why Israel is a bad example is not because they didn't make it to heaven. The reason why they are a bad example is because they did not believe in God. And we are not to follow in their footsteps as the church. And therefore, we must exhort one another. Exhort one another. And this is, this is my second point this morning. Exhortation to the church. So, when I first became a Christian, I was taught a way to share the gospel with anybody. And one of the ways that uh, I would explain the concept of sin is that I would explain it as an archery term. If you imagine you have a bullseye, or you have a, a target, and right in the middle is your bullseye. Let's say your arrow hits somewhere not on the bullseye. 
say it hits over here, this distance is technically called sin. Now, as I've learned some things over the years, and as I've examined the scriptures, I've, I've actually come to learn that I don't really like that definition and way of explaining sin. Because when you look at passages like ours here this morning, and the words that are used to describe a sinful heart, it's not so much that they're aiming for the bullseye, and they just miss by a little bit. No, the reality of what how sin is described in the Scriptures is that you're not aiming in the direction of God. No, you are aiming in the complete other direction. And your back is towards God and opposed to His ways. And so when we see words that God is provoked by their sin, that He is disgusted by it, and that they are hardened or obstinate, we're not merely missing the mark. You see, in verses 12 and 13, there's a bit of a progression that takes place here. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you catch the progression? It reads like this, evil, unbelieving, falling away, hardened heart. This is what sin does. This is why we are to take it seriously. Falling away, we get the word apostate from this word. The idea of someone turning away from or forsaking. And the, the end result is one of the most tragic and terrifying realities in all of the universe. That someone can fall away from the living God because of a hard heart. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the reality of hell. The eternal separation from God. People don't really like to talk about this. It makes them squirm. makes them uncomfortable. And oftentimes it gets watered down. And I really think this is because we don't take the holiness of God seriously and His standard and His perfection. We also don't take man's sinfulness seriously. One commentator said it like this, if we meditated on the stunning nature of the absolute per perfection of God, and if we meditated on the dark, horrendous, heinous ugliness of our sin, I'm deeply persuaded that we would have a different response to hell and God's judgment. And I would add a more accurate and biblical response to hell and God's judgment. I think Martin Luther is actually really helpful when, when considering the realities of hell. His, his life is a, a great example of one who meditated on God's perfection, God's holiness, but also his own sinfulness. I once read of a story of this, uh, this Dutch theologian. His name is Heiko Oberman. At one time, he was giving a, a lecture on Martin Luther and his life. And Oberman was talking to a group of, of younger students, young students. And over time, he became irritated and frustrated at the young students. But it wasn't because they were being disrespectful or it wasn't because they weren't paying attention. No, it was because they were young when I first read this, it was like, because they were young? Like, what kind of crotchety old man is this? <laughs> but here's what Oberman said. 
He said, young men will never understand Luther because you go to bed at night confident that you will wake up healthy in the morning. In Luther's day, people thought it every day that every day could be their last. They had no antibiotics. They had no modern medicine. Sickness and death came swiftly. Oberman got it right. And in order to understand Luther, we need to know that he face the reality of eternity every night. But so do we. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, folks. When we leave this building, we're not even guaranteed the next stoplight. Luther, he was known to have nightmares because he would, he would just be terrified and crippled in fear that he would wake up in hell. And that angst grew as this young monk grew in his understanding of who God is. And as he compared that with who he was, he saw the great chasm in between. But by God's grace, God used the living Word of God to set Luther's heart ablaze. And as he was meditating on the book of Romans, and in particular Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Luther was delivered from those nightly fears, from that anxiety that he thought that this day might be his last because he found the great key, not just to get out of hell, but he found the great key to know God himself, and that is through Christ. And that is through Christ and what he's done for you, what he's done for Luther, and what he's done for me. You see, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to pass the test that Israel failed. Jesus came on our behalf, under temptation to sin, he not only obeyed God perfectly, but the evidence of his obedience was his faith in God. He trusted in him. And then Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty. He completely covered the penalty due for our rebellion against God. And more than that, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead offering forgiveness, but offering hope in the face of death. The reality is, folks, is that at one point in time, we all have had this hard heart that Israel had. We oppose God going astray in rebellion to Him, and we could do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing. And that's why salvation belongs to the Lord. Because He not only sent Jesus to accomplish these things for us, and then we just have to reach out for Him. No, that's not what the Scriptures teach. No, the Scriptures teach that this is God's work and what He does. This is evidence in Ezekiel 36. He says that I will cleanse you. God says that I will forgive you. God says that I will deliver you. And most notably, in light of our passage this morning in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart. I will take away your heart of stone. That's your hard heart. And I will give you a heart of flesh and I will be your God. This is God's work that He did 
through Christ. And it just begs the question, church, will you believe it? Will you trust in Him? Do you trust in Him continually, day in and day out? And if the answer is yes, praise God. You've been born again. You've been made alive. Today can be the day of salvation for you and for me. And when God does this heart surgery, removing the hard heart and giving us a soft heart, we're born again, our eyes are open, and we want to follow Him. We want to obey Him. We want to know Him. We want to live according to His ways and not our own. And so really, folks, this, this passage here this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, it, it is a call to exhort one another, but I think before we do that, we're actually called to examine our, ourselves, examine our own hearts. And if, if you claim the name of Jesus, if, if you say, yes, I believe, but you are having struggles and you are having doubts, I, I want you to know that this is a safe place for you. Like this is a place where you can be open and honest about those things and you're not going to be shunned or condemned by people, but you can be known and we can wrestle through these things together. But if you are considering of walking away from Jesus, let this passage be a warning to you. That just as Israel was not able to enter the, ra- the, the rest of God, but experience the wrath of God, Ladies and gentlemen, if you're thinking of turning away, don't do it. It's not worth it. Whatever your heart is longing or desiring, it's not better than Jesus. Jesus is better. Hebrews, Jesus is better than anything that your heart is longing after. Please don't make that huge mistake. The results are eternally consequential. And so we, we must examine ourselves. But more than that, we need to succeed where Israel failed. And we need to exhort one another. One just has to wonder if, if Israel, instead of grumbling together, but, but they had this, this culture of exhorting one another to trust God and believe in Him, how, how greatly different it would be. But I trust the providence of God, and this is how He had it work out. So if examining is, is kind of this, this personal charge, exhorting one another is, is a communal charge. See, exhort, one, one might come to that word and not really understand it and, and seek to uh, try to correct people or try to even rebuke people for their sin. And, and what happens when you have that type of person or even worse, a culture of that within a church is that people put on facades. They, they put on masks and, and they can't be truly known. But, but more than that, you, you, run, you have all these self-righteous people running around just sniffing each other's sin out when they don't even examine their own hearts and their, and their own sin and where they, they need to repent themselves. And that's, that's not good. And so people just, they're coming and they're hammering each other with Scripture bombs and can't you see what Jesus did? You need to turn, you sinner. And that's not what the Scriptures are calling us to here. I liken it to my son, Augie. He's four years old. He's learning how to ice skate. <laughs> For those of you who, who know Augie, um, if you ever hear him cry, it's not this like nice little whimper. It's, 
it's this like oh, just ear piercing wailing. I mean, he just so if you can imagine, like this little guy, he's learning how to skate. He's got hockey skates on, and he's fumbling, bumbling. He's super timid, and then he falls. And then he just screams at the top of his lungs in the ice rink, and everybody looks at him. And I'm just like, oh gosh. <laughs> and so if I came over to Augie, and I was like, what are you doing? Get up. You're embarrassing me. Augie, stop doing this. Augie, you can do this. Get up on your skates and skate. Watch daddy. Can't you see how much I've been doing it? What do you think that's going to do to him? It's going to crush his spirits. He's going to be like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I never want to skate, let alone play hockey again. And, and he misses out on all this, these joys. Ladies and gentlemen, when we're called to exhort, that word is synonymous with encourage. Some of you might have a translation that says encourage. We are to encourage one another daily. Now, now, courage is, a, is an interesting word, and we talked about it at man school a couple months ago. And Just this idea of you see the danger that's ahead of you, and you have the courage to keep going. And so when you encourage someone, when you speak words of life to them, it's like me coming alongside Augie. Hey, bud, I, I know that hurt really bad, but I love you, and I am for you, and I want you to get up and keep trying but if you need a break, we can go have some Cheetos. That's fine. When we encourage people, it, it breathes life to one another. It breathes life. It builds one another up. This word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it can be translated as comforted. And it's caring. And it wants to not just sniff out your sin, but it wants to walk with you to turn from that sin and help one another. And ladies and gentlemen, here's the deal. We need the Christian community speaking to one another. I need the Christian community speaking to me because we are all deceived by sin. Sin is deceptive and we need to be exhorted every day. Every day. So here at the crossing, we have Sunday gatherings and we have life groups. Sunday gathering, absolutely vital to your growth as a Christian. In a life group, it's, it's just critical for you to be known and to have people in your life. But there's a real reality that you can attend those events and not be really known. You can attend those events and not actively be pursuing people and, be letting, them, and letting them pursue you. And behind the scenes, your heart could be evil, unbelieving, falling away. So we need one another. We, we set up these structures in our church not to just have a nice smorgasbord for people to pick on the website. and Oh, that looks like a good church. I'm going to go there. No, we, we create contexts for discipleship to take place. We create environments so that we can speak the truth of the Scripture. We can speak the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And so it begs the question, who's speaking to you in your life? And who's in your life that you're speaking into? Can you list off a handful of people who are in our church 
who will lovingly listen to you through your struggles, but will then in turn build you up in the faith. And who are you doing that to? That's the call here. We are called to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That word today, it's not just a 24-hour period. No, the, the word today is the time from when Jesus ascended to the Father after the resurrection to the, the time when He returns. And in that time, which we are in that time right now, He's not come back yet as much as the false prophets would like you to believe. We are called to encourage one another exhort one another. And so it's passages like this that give an open invitation to you and to me. And so when somebody comes to you and, and they love you and they, and they want to speak a word of truth in your life, know that that's a means of God's grace. And they want to help you. Not to have them look better, but to have Jesus look better. Amen? So as you examine yourselves and as you exhort others, you might have this question swirling around in your head from our passage this morning, that if I believe in Jesus, is it possible for me to fall away? And that leads me to our third point here this morning, enduring to the end. Endure to the end. And so one can, can really read this passage and, and wrestle with a question like that. Is it possible for me to fall away after I first believed in Jesus? Well, I would answer that question in two parts. I would say it depends. <laughs> I would say it depends if you're asking that it's possible for someone who professes Christ, who really believes that their sins are forgiven, who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them and they're desiring to walk with God. Is it possible for them to go astray? Is it possible for them to stumble, struggle with sin, fall back into old patterns? Yeah, I would say it's possible. I, I would say it's not just possible. I know that that's the real reality of the Christian life. And that's something that I struggle with and that we all struggle with. And that's why the, the Christian life needs to be marked by repentance and faith, continually turning from our sin and believing in Jesus day in and day out. However, if the question that you're asking is possible for someone who has been saved, the text here says a brother and sister, and for them to fall away or to lose their salvation, or to spend eternity apart from God, I would answer with an emphatic no. That is not possible. Look at verse 14. He says here, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come. We have come. This is a, a unique phrase. It has the meaning of something that has happened at some point in the past, with results that continue in the presence. So we have not only to come to share once in Christ, but we continue to share in Him. And we will continue to share in Him for the rest of our lives until we see Him face to face. 
Now, what does it mean to share in Christ? I would say these are all the blessings, these are all the benefits that the Christian has in Christ. You can go to passages like Romans chapter 8 or Ephesians chapter 1. You see that we've been predestined before the foundation of the world to be adopted. We no longer are enemies of God, but we are children of God. We have redemption. We have been set free from our sin. The penalty of sin has been taken care of on the cross, and the power of sin also has been broken. We've been redeemed. And more than that, we've been forgiven. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which Ephesians 1 talks about as the guaranteed or the down payment of our inheritance of what is to come. And so if we are children and not enemies, if we are saints and not sinners, then we must hold firm to this confidence. We must hold firm to this reality of what we confess. So this idea of enduring, this idea of persevering, is a great doctrine in the history of the church called the perseverance of the saints. And we really will unpack the perseverance of the saints throughout the book of Hebrews. It's all over it. I just want to whet your appetite a little bit here this morning. Here's a definition for you of the perseverance of the saints. All those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Here's the truth as it is taught throughout the Scriptures in the New Testament. A number of different writers. I'm just going to read a few of them to you. The Apostle John says in John chapter 6, in the great narrative of Jesus being the bread of life, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Did you catch that? Did you catch God's power in there? As well as our responsibility of faith? Here's another example. John chapter 10. My sheep hear My voice and I know them. They follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. How about another apostle? The apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Two more. The Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This was all of us at one point in time. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless 
and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And lastly, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, He who endures to the end will be saved. So we see in our passage this morning, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end, what are we to hold? We're told faith. This is our responsibility. This is what we're called to do. Yes, we are to demonstrate our faith by the good works that we do. We're saved by faith alone, but our faith is never alone. Great Luther quote. But in the end, those who persevere are those who believe. And those who believe will persevere to the end. We can take great confidence in that. I love the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. It starts out with this great refrain. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter will prevail, Christ will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. And I love that reality because, ladies and gentlemen, the Christian life is, is hard. It's difficult. We are on this pilgrimage to the celestial city. And one day we will get there. And there will be doubts and there will be struggles. And that's why God has given us the Christian community day in and day out to encourage one another. But ultimately, it's not up to us. Ultimately, it's up to God. And He who began a good work in us, He who removed the heart of stone, will bring us to completion at the day. At the day of Christ Jesus. So in closing, this passage, it really is meant to serve as a warning. It's a warning for us, the church, not to follow in Israel's footsteps, but to examine and encourage. And I trust, as we come to share in Christ, we will persevere. We will endure to the end. And how we do that? We do it together. We preach the Gospel to ourselves daily. My spiritual hero, Jerry Bridges, he told me to do that. And I was like, what does that mean? And when we come to realize the reality that the Gospel is for us each and every day, it's not the gateway that we walk through, but it is the path that we walk on, that we will hold firm our confidence to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am thankful for this passage. Lord, I ask just that you would use it continually in the life of your people. God, I pray just that you would help those who are considering walking away, abandoning. Lord, that they would see you as chief, as supreme, that they would see at what great cost to yourself you have purchased their salvation. And God, we trust that the Christian community has a vital role to play in that. And so God, would you give us the humility to receive encouragement from one another? But Lord, I also pray that you would give us courage and, and even boldness to speak words of life to one another. And that our Christian community would be marked not by the performance that we do, but by the performance that you have accomplished on our behalf, Lord Jesus. 
So we thank You that You are a great God and you, that You are a great Savior. I pray as we remember the Lord's table right now that You would even just bring those realities to our minds afresh. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.